most painful Hello and welcome to episode 95 of What Most People Think, and I am recording this. This is going to be coming at you coming at you. A, a little bit later than usual. I'm recording this. I did a gig in Halifax last night, or Halifax, as it's called. No one's actually used the H in Halifax for a very long time. And then uh, I was knackered and hung over, so I got <laughs> I got stayed at a Ramada hotel in Wakefield because... Uh, well, it's glamorous. It's a glamorous life. But the fact that I'm recording this on Friday morning means that, well, I, uh, the podcast I was able to pick up on Matt Hancock. Matt <laughs> Hancock. I don't know about you, man, but but his his misdemeanor seems to have put a real spring in the country step. It's just it's just so much fun when someone gets caught doing something bad, and it, you know. And he's such a twat, Mac Hancock. And I, I think we're going to have to cover this as a subject. There's so much in this. So uh, we've also got we've got England playing uh, Germany. I mean, because it almost feels like a bit of a, a 96 revival, right? Is the, you know, we're, we're, there's a Tory minister up to no good. We're going to be playing Germany at Wembley in the European Championships. It does feel spirit of 96. Let's get a Spice Girls single out there. Let's, do, let's, breathe, let's get the old band back together. Um, but speaking of which, you know, we're playing Germany and everyone's going, oh, fuck the Germans. I mean, it's not like we've had any good results against Portugal. Portugal have dicked us every which way. Uh, well, they're not even just a bogey team, are they? They're a, they're a, they're a snot team. <laughs> and Scotland going out. Look, I, I said I wanted all the home nations to do well. Then obviously Scotland thrashed England 0-0 at Wembley and some of their fans got a bit, giving it a bit large. So look, I, did, I, I didn't want them to go out, but I sort of thought, fucking hell, five days is a long time in football, isn't it? You know what I mean? From kind of, oh, we've... I remember one, one guy saying, oh, we humbled England nil-nil um, to going out with 1.1 goal and five against. And, and that commentator uh, who said that... Uh, or the ITV commentator said, it, it looks like Scotland will be going into isolation after all. Uh, I mean, it was a funny line, mate. Well done. Uh, you know, enjoy the complaints and there, there will be one or two, but... Uh... It was kind of funny. Uh, so this is a special episode. This is now a special Matt Hancock episode to an extent. But but more to the point, we had the five-year anniversary of the Brexit uh, vote this week. And we're going to be talking about... So the main special thing is that I am going to include... Because I know some of, you are, some of you are just dragging your heels. We've spoken about this. The people that want to buy the book, but just haven't done it yet. So I'm throwing out a whole chapter from the book. A whole audio extract... 20 minutes long, the chapter that deals with the day uh, that Brexit happens. That's absolutely free. And my hope there is that if you haven't bought the book, you think, oh, I'm going to buy the book or download the audio book or that you've already done that or you've already read the book and you think I might as well listen to it too. And at the moment, I think on Audible, it's still free, but it's done well on Audible. So there will be a price on that soon. So that's coming up in the show. And we'll talk about uh, a few things in and around Brexit. New VIP patrons this week. And this is maybe in advance of the release, the streaming. Can I use the word streaming? That feels sexy. I mean, it's not really streaming. I'm just going to be uploading it to a thing and then you can watch it. Uh, but we've got new VIP patrons, Steve Bagshaw, who sounds like a cartoonist, Bagshaw in The Guardian. Uh, Jonathan Edgar, that is, that's a Tory MP name, totally. Jonathan Ed Edgar, the new MP for South Ryslip East. <laughs> uh, and James, well, James Hellier, his name's his surname is spelled H-E-L-L-Y-E-R. Is that Hellier or hell yeah, 
James Hell, yeah. I bet you never heard that joke before. A uh, quick cuss count from last week. So we had uh, the Man Whisperer on, and we had a lot of positive feedback about that. I'm not going to be doing mental, men's mental health stuff all the time, but it's just been a period, I think, as we're coming out of lockdown, where it's classic for blokes to sort of deal with things on a delay. Do you know what I mean? We sort of we bottle it up, we get, get our hernias, and then something changes, then we go, oh, I feel weird, I'm feeling all these fucking emotions. And a lot of it is just delayed, so do check out that episode, episode 94. Um, there was 0.72 swears a minute. There were three uses of the word pricks, which is uh, notable. Two cricket references, one innuendo, and the man whisperer had one swear. So he's definitely at the virtuous end of the leaderboard there. He's mid-table, but he has been on three times, and I think he's got one of the lowest average swears. Uh, so before we crack on, because there's plenty in this episode... A quick thank you and a fuck you. Thank you to the tobacco doc in Wapping. Now, I didn't get any freebies here, but I did watch the England game. No, sorry, the uh, France-Portugal game there on Wednesday for my mate Austin, his 50th birthday. And uh, what I noticed, there was a lot of French and Portuguese fans there, is that they have quite a dr- different drinking culture to us. They were like getting like, we, we all started off with beers and then I saw them ordering a few Cokes. You know, obviously, which would infuriate Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, so maybe they weren't true Portuguese, but I just thought, God, I was like, it's a sunny day. Your team is a it's a great game. France Portugal was a great game. I thought you should be you should be on the smash. Why isn't anybody fighting? <laughs> They're just different, aren't they? They're just different. And then the fuck you goes to well, not to Mumford and Sons because what's happened is I don't know if you remember this story. We spoke about this, didn't we, on the podcast? whereby um, I think their their banjo player, a guy called Winston Marshall, got sort of cancelled, well, totally cancelled, because he uh, tweeted that he appreciated um, a book by a controversial uh, right-wing journalist or anti-Antifa sort of Antifa journalist, Andy NGO, I don't know how to pronounce his name. And... Um, and yeah, like everyone swarmed in on him. They just presumed that he was uh, he was a fascist or fash. I hate it when they say that. That just makes him sound so middle class. Yeah, that guy's fash. It's just it almost like when they say stuff like that, it almost implies that they have a level of respect for fascism. Like they've given it a kind of cute nickname. And um, and then you know the band went to ground and stuff, and he's basically come out. And you should go on Twitter, find Winston uh, Marshall, and read. Uh, his letter because he explains everything that happened and you know his his own background. I mean, like the idea that this guy could be a Nazi, given his family's history in the concentration camps, is a bit of a reach. And it turns out he's just a centrist, really. But he's had to leave the band. So, I mean, it is a good example uh, that cancel culture, as we as any sensible person knows, exists. But it's just the consequences, Jeff. Yeah, well, in these cases, the consequences are a man losing his job. Because he he appreciated something a journalist had said. He hadn't written it. He didn't write the article. He didn't write the book. Do you know what I mean? We are now in an age when celebrities get in trouble because of things that they said or wrote rather than things that they did. I mean, Jesus Christ. Back in the day, pop stars were fucking shagging 14-year-olds and David Bowie still got a National Day of Mourning. But I wasn't endorsing, you know, <laughs> I actually thought it was bad. It just seemed that when David Bowie died, because people love Bowie so much, they were willing to overlook the fact he dressed dressed up as a Nazi and had apparently, allegedly, relations relations with people younger than he probably should have done. Okay, well look, we're gonna we were just gonna talk quickly about Brexit and then get get into the audio extract. But um, I think we now need to have a quick chat about Matt Hancock, don't we? <laughs> Oh, 
So this morning, Britain awoke to the news that everyone's favourite bellend, Matt Hancock, uh, there's a photo, and there's a photo of him with his aide. I don't know, only tabloids use words like aides, you know, it's like when they talk about people romping in a hotel room. And anyway, he's copping hold of his aide, and uh, he's got his hand on her ass, and it's just the most hilarious photo. I mean, like, one thing I do have a reservation here is he does have a wife, and she hasn't done anything wrong, and I feel bad about that, but fuck me, it is... Because it's, it's just that pure schadenfreude thing, isn't it? It's the worst thing in the world just to just to have that on a national newspaper, you know? And and the fact is, he's, the way that he's snogging her, he's snogging her like a sixth former at prom <laughs> with his hand on the ass. He sort of strikes me, just from that photo, as the kind of guy that was still practising kissing on his hand till, like, till he was in his early 30s. You know when people used to sort of Frenchie their hands? I think he still does that now while he looks at himself in the mirror, maintaining full eye contact. And um, it's weird because, you know, I was, I was texting with a mate and we're saying, well, is he finished? Um, you know, politics is a weird thing. I said, a lot of it will come down to, you know, what does she look like? People are, people are, so, people are so primitive in a way. And she is quite good looking. If you ever needed uh, evidence that power was an aphrodisiac in politics, particularly when men have it, is just look at Matt Hancock. Look at the woman he's been having it away with and then look at Matt Hancock again, okay? Because he's, he's, not, he's not an ugly guy. He's just a weird-looking guy. You know, in, in, a, in another life, he looks like an extra from The Office. Do you know what I mean? If you just said, oh, that was a character from The Office's of Wernham Hogg, you go, yeah, that's exactly what Matt Hancock looks like. And, you know, the question then, then begs itself of whether or not um, is this kind of, like, relevant to the, to the public, and I think normally with, with private life, public life, I think I'm happy for there to be quite a divide. I don't think that they always need to cross over. He is the health secretary. He has managed this in a pandemic. And <laughs> there is a part of me that's either thinking, legend, or no, I'm not thinking that. It's just, how the hell do you find the time? How the hell do you find the energy? This is what I said. I think I said this on uh, the episode with the man whisperer. Like, these guys that conduct these affairs like for ages, it's like... The energy, the anxiety. I mean, maybe that's the only time he feels alive. It's the adrenaline, the fear of being caught. And God, my God, there's a photo of him, like the press are sharing all sorts of photos. I think the press are like deliberately picking the one where he looks like the sleaziest possible. And there's one in The Guardian of him like exiting a uh, political office and she's behind him. And he's got this smug look on his face. And I have to say this, and apologies in advance for being grotty, right? But he sort of looked like he's he's about to go smell my finger. And I, look, I told you that that was immature and teenage, but this is exactly what he looks like. He looks like he's like, see that? Uh, I just had a go on that, didn't I? I mean, he he he's probably the kind of guy, Matt Hancock, that never never got any women in his early life, and probably only you get these guys in comedy sometimes too. Is that they're seeking like uh, something public that they could do or be where they could kind of bury their bury the hatchet of their their lean sort of teenage years and yeah all of which I mean can he stay in the job because this is this is big you know like he's got to he's got to face the public I mean he's already I mean he's pretty shameless as it goes he's already faced the public after it being transpired that most of his colleagues thought he was useless so he's got to now face down the public and you know what if he can do it and keep his game face I think he's he's either a psychopath 
or a genius? What most people think. Okay, quick chat about Brexit before we go into this week's free audio extract chapter from my book, Where Did I Go Right? How the Left Lost Me. Five years since Brexit. And uh, so the chapter itself is about what happened on that day and my explanation for my reasons and, and how I felt at the time. But in terms of how I feel now, I mean, it's, at the moment, there does seem to be a lot of clamour uh, to be proved right or wrong, right? Which seems just a tad hasty, doesn't it? I mean, I know, I understand it, I get it. People want, you know, we argued about it for so long, people want to essentially, like, sort of take a blood test of Brexit, do you know what I mean? Or a litmus test, is it shit or good? Or, And I just don't think, this sounds mealy mouth, but I just don't think you can sort of judge it yet. I don't. I think it's going to take, what, a minimum, minimum five to ten years, minimum. And I think that one thing that Remainers, you know, when they're, they're talking about whether or not it was a success, what, what you need to take on board is that for a lot of people, me included, one of the benefits of Brexit was not being in the EU. Now, you might not understand that, you know, the old sovereignty thing, it always sounded a bit archaic to some people, didn't it? But the moment you leave the EU, that is a benefit of Brexit. I do not wish to be in that huge, hulking, massive, fucking autocratic fucking oil tanker that is the EU. I, I didn't want to be in it. And then also, you know, if you wanted to have control over the British borders, not not that we made good use of it during COVID, Jesus Christ, one of the biggest failures. I'd love to someone to explain to me why we left the borders open to India as long as we did. Because at this point, you know, it's clear it was a fuck up, but no one's ever actually said, well, if you want to know, this was actually the reason that we did it. Because at this point, it's, it just looks insane. Yeah, answers to me. Uh, email what most people think UK at gmail.com. Is there a single logical reason, even if it was proved wrong in the fullness of time, as to why we didn't shut the borders earlier? Uh, so, oh God, this right wing comedian, they eh? just just kissing the ass of the government. What have we done? We've taken a takedown of Matt Hancock, and now we're slamming the government over the Delta variant. Um, but yeah, some people will see those things as, as a benefit in itself. So when you're talking about, well, but give me one single advantage, there'll be a lot of people that can already see two of the biggest ones have happened already. And then we come up against, you know, what claims were made over time and, and which ones have been disproved so far. And, you know, if you're a Remain, I'm sure that you'll, you'll point to things that were said about Brexit and, you know, haven't been delivered yet. But again, it's early days. But there were certain ones and The Spectator shared them that, you know, the more extreme ends of Project Fear weren't right about, which was, what was it about? Every household will be like five grand worse off. Uh, there'll be uh, 500,000 uh, unemployed. I mean, Jesus Christ, we've got a pandemic and the unemployed rate hasn't even hit 5%. I, mean, I, don't, I don't know what this, this economy is of ours. I've said it before. Our capacity to carry on spending on pointless shit we don't need is almost a heroic feature. You know, every time... Every time you order a fucking glitter gun you don't need from Argos Online, that is, that, is our, that is our December 1940, right? We are shutting the blackout curtains. We've done it through lockdown. And we just bought a lot of shit, a lot of takeaway. <laughs> we got fat for Britain. But you get these things that come up. Like, for example, um, roaming charges. Roaming charges. Uh, a lot of the big mobile phone operators said that they would not reintroduce them in the EU. And that was a choice. And then EE, EE Network have gone back on them. So you know what? You don't have to do this EE. They said that it was because uh, because of inward investment or some shit. Basically, they just thought, I, I see a point in time where I think we could get away with this. And they're hoping the other network competitors will do that. Oh, well, fuck you, EE. I mean, I wasn't. We're all about the boycotts these days. I am not an EE customer, but I'm going to carry on not being one. And you know what? 
So, yeah, so someone else can fund Kevin Bacon's fucking divorce lawyer fees or whatever reason it is that he does that gig. We've, I mean, we've also had more substantial things like stats on trade with neighbours. So, you know, obviously exports to the EU slumped in the first quarter of the year. And it's hard to unpick how much of that is COVID. I'd imagine if you're selling whiskey and food, you know, to a continent that wasn't open, um, <laughs> I would imagine that that would have an impact. But then there's also this evidence that, you know, Irish imports, uh, they've got a a surplus now with the EU, which would certainly suggest that at least for the time being, the Irish have taken advantage uh, of the additional red tape and, you know, won some business there. And yeah, you're welcome, Ireland. You're welcome. But that was just, look, we still feel bad about the potato thing. And we're just breaking you off a piece. But but will it stay that way? Will it stay that way? Maybe, you know, there's a lot of European nations that may think, you know, less positively about the British. Will we recover it elsewhere, globally? Maybe, but a lot of these things that the British government are shooting for, i.e. the Australian trade deal, which is a route into the transatlantic fucking Pacific... I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm out of my depth there. I was, really, I was really on a roll there of trying to sound like I knew what was going on. So, you know, but look, I get it. If you, if you didn't see any issues with being in the EU, then nothing I could say to you now will seem worth it because you just didn't see it as, as a problem. But I would challenge the idea at the time. A lot of people said that well, working class voters, they've been duped. They voted against their own self-interest. They were ill-informed. I mean, look how much focus or attention has been given on what offer you make to working class voters since then, right? The Tories are all about the working class. The Tories fucking moving shit up north. Aren't they? They're going to call themselves Tories. <laughs> and, and, you know, there's... There's not going to be another round of austerity. There's no way that the Conservatives could do it, especially on normal people, you know, everyday people and regular incomes, because they knew they couldn't they couldn't piss off their new friends in the north. Labour uh, are desperately trying to work out how to re-engage with those people. I mean, Labour's decision to advocate a second referendum was fucking disastrous, and I've gi- I've given Jeremy Corbyn a lot of stick, but he knew he knew deep down that it it, it was wrong. You know, it was whether. It might have been the wrong decision to leave the EU. As I was discussing with a comic last night, is you've just got to deliver democratic votes, right? You can't piss about. I mean, the, the idea straight after Brexit, when people like Tony Blair were saying, well, you know, you know, we, you don't have to definitely do it. And then people started with all that. It's advisory shit. Do you, do you remember? Do you remember the it's advisory thing? You're going, ah, it's, it's advisory, is it? That's, that, that's, that's kind of weird. Cause I seem to remember a leaflet given to every nation, that household in the nation, saying, we will definitely do this, brackets, it is not advisory. I mean, it was sort of the, the it's advisory argument was a bit like, you know, like where you best of five, you know, when you're playing three and in, and then you get beat, and then you make goes best of five, best of seven, best of 10. Oh, break time's over. So <laughs> look, I, I, I get it. I, I've become a lot more open to what, you know, Remainers are upset about. There are things that they have lost, and I think you have to be, sensitive um, to that fact but I just honestly you know I think what most people think is that a people in Britain don't particularly want to talk about Brexit much maybe this week it makes sense to because it's been five years but also you really aren't going to be able to come to conclusions about the next stage of Britain's history on the global stage after six months and maybe four months of data you just can't do it Okay, so to continue the Brexit theme, now let's dive into a free entire extract from the audible version of my book, Where Did I Go Right? How the Left Lost Me? And this is the chapter about Brexit Day. I think it's called Brexit 1 AD. So grab yourself a cup of tea, 
Mm, this is going to be a slightly different pace. Just get yourself settled and Uncle Jeff is going to read you a story. Chapter 11. Brexit 1 AD. It's 24th of June 2016, the day of the Brexit result. Britain has voted by a massive or tiny majority, depending how you see these things, to leave the EU. I'm sitting at the offices of a TV production company writing for a panel show on Channel 5 and wondering if I might have booby-trapped my own career. Virtually the whole comedy industry voted against this thing, and here I am, at the heart of it, a cultural splinter cell trying to keep a low profile. The tantrums after 2015 were nothing compared to this. Back then, the Liberal left spat the dummy. Now they set fire to their pram. I hope they don't set fire to mine. A bit of context. I've been blessed with a gorgeous and brilliant son who is now three months old. If turning 30 focused my mind, having an actual child and being the main breadwinner has made me put on a pair of blinkers and stare at a sign marked MONEY! It's not just that he costs money. I'm acutely aware that as a boy he will one day assess me in the way only sons of fathers and daughters of mothers tend to. I need to really do something. As the referendum came into view, I went public with my intention to vote leave. If my baby boy could have spoken at the time, he might have said, do something, but maybe not that. This time, my vote was delivered in an actual polling booth. I'd got up early to vote before heading into London. We now live in a small town in Cambridgeshire. You might say, Cambridgeshire, in invisible quotation marks, just as people once said Wimbledon. But where I live is a fairly standard English town. Out here in the sticks, Voting leave didn't seem like a particularly big deal. However, in fairness, neither does fox hunting. The day of the vote had played out like many prologues to an upsetting defeat for the Liberal left, with the cruel tonic of false hope. As the hours ticked by, a growing certainty had taken hold that Remain would win. That outcome wouldn't have surprised me. I hoped it would at least be reasonably close to give the EU cause to reflect on its dick-waving faith in its own immutability. It was natural to suspect the incumbents would swing it, Indeed, how could Leave win? Remain had the full force of the government. Remain had dropped a leaflet into every home in Britain. Though one day we'd be led to believe that was nowhere near as persuasive as a Russian bot shitposting on Twitter. Remain had all the celebrities. Remain had David Bloody Beckham, a man who, having shown true radical instincts with his hair, was apparently incredibly conservative when it came to continued membership of a supranational economic trading bloc. Remain had all the experts, apparently. Economists were fated as oracles, even though their recent strike rate had been nothing to be proud of. As my mate, a broker, said to me of financial institutions, most of the financial sector are like GPs. We can only diagnose things for certain once they've already happened, and even then we're not entirely sure. The FTSE had a big rally as expectations of a Remain win swept through the city. The same Tory-hating lefties who'd spent the last years pouring scorn on those motivated by money were now sharing screenshots of the pound rising against the dollar, like currency markets had suddenly become the nation's sole moral compass. The same artists who were supposed to be led by a maverick spirit were hailing the likely continuity of the neoliberal status quo. Many of the people who declared themselves socialists were loosening the champagne corks for the ongoing membership of a political body with strict rules on state aid. And here I was, a conservative, and we're supposed to sacrifice everything to the gods of economic stability, betting the family estate on the feeling that somehow Britain would be okay. Whatever the result was, one thing was clear, the Brexit vote had thrown a hand grenade into the old political certainties. 
The first I knew of the result was when I woke around 5am. I'd been staying in a hotel as I had a busy writing job on in town. The TV had been on all night and I became loosely aware of the moist sounds of David Cameron's dribbly voice drifting through the chintzy haze of the hotel room. His face was obscured by a sunbeam which had crept through the curtain and nudged me awake. I caught something about him thinking it would not be right for him to be the captain. I opened my eyes a bit wider to take in the bar at the bottom of the screen which was variously reading, Britain votes to leave the EU, pound crashes, everything will be shit now. I hopped out of bed. There are a lot of cliches which real life never fully delivers on, but I really did hop, like a rabbit who'd had mustard smeared on his ass. I, like everyone, had gone to bed thinking Remain would win, maybe gotten a little used to the idea. I felt that Britain would be better off outside the EU in the medium to long term, but could see too that continuity would also bring benefits. At the very least, it would have resolved the question. Either way, this was Britain, and I was certain that if it had gone the other way, the Remain side would be equally magnanimous. My first thought upon hearing the result wasn't about the comedy industry or the jeopardy my career might be in, that would come later. It was whether my wife knew about the result. I rang her to see if she was reeling or hated me because she had voted Remain. The fact we voted differently often gets a surprised reaction from liberal middle-class types. It's another piece of unconscious bias. They presume a guy like me tells his wife how to vote just after he's informed her what time dinner should be on the table. Thankfully, she has a mind of her own, though I admit I would prefer more stable meal times. So I wanted to see whether she was angry with me, but having a child is a great means of focusing on the here and now. The fact that the Prime Minister had resigned came a distant second to the fact our son had just rolled onto his tummy. Prime Ministers would come and go, but there would be only one time our boy developed this particular motor neuron skill. It'll be all right, won't it? Of course, she said, before wisely adding, maybe stay off social media today. Like most idiotic husbands, I said of course, then immediately check social media. It was more of a scan than an in-depth evaluation, but the initial signs weren't good. Buzzwords included racist, stupid, and you stole my child's future. Still, maybe they were just crabby because they hadn't drunk their first morning coffee. I was sure they'd chill out as the day went on. I did have a nagging concern. At this point, I wasn't aware of any other comedian who'd been quite so open about their intention to vote leave. Having hauled myself up to a decent living through writing comedy as well as performing in the clubs, I was now wondering if I'd comprehensively shot myself in the foot. The first thing I see when I enter the office is a producer crying in the kitchen, and I don't think it's because we've run out of Nespresso pods. All around, people are standing in hushed corners discussing things in a low voice. The atmosphere is heavy, funereal even. Voting to leave the EU has created a feeling like a relative has just died. In typically middle-class style, it's a relative they didn't talk about much until the last few months. A relative they didn't give much of a shit about until they felt there was a chance they might get written out of the will. I don't know how many of my immediate colleagues are aware I'm a leave voter. Most circuit stand-ups would be, but in this context, I'm very much a writer, a joke monkey. I've written a few articles indicating my intention to vote for Brexit, but I doubt if anyone here has read them. So I decide to keep a low profile and just crack on with my work. The show I'm writing on is a dating panel show. It feels very odd to go from epoch-shaking news of our times to writing knob gags for Eamon Holmes. However, adversity has sharpened my mind. The first joke I write is, an Egyptian guy offered me 20 camels for my wife. I said, throw in the lighter and you've got yourself a deal. I know, right? In the same way Wilfred Owen found his voice in war, I appear to be hitting new heights as Britain thrashes itself free of continental rule.
Having bashed out a number of gags easily of this gold standard, I log on to Facebook. Most of my feed features fellow comics and industry professionals. I'm hoping to get a sense of the mood, maybe a more level-headed reaction since the very early morning. This is Britain, right? Magnanimous in victory, magnificent in defeat. The very first post I read is from a stand-up colleague I once spent a whole week gigging with overseas, and it reads, So that's it then. Britain is a country of 17.4 million racists. My heart races. I look at the likes for this comment. It's already in the high hundreds. Foolishly, I decide to read exactly who has liked this comment. That peculiar impulse when something hasn't gone your way to roll the dice again even though the dice are on fire. The likes turn out to be almost exclusively people I know and have worked with. They've concurred with a sentiment which implicitly defines me as a racist. This can't be good for business, not in the comedy game. I wouldn't normally accord social media so much gravitas, but this is comedy. Facebook and Twitter represent our water cooler. Okay, hope you're enjoying the extract. I think it was a bit weird the way that I said water cooler. Water cooler. It's, it's hard when you have to talk for that long. And I hope that this is tempting you to, uh, to, to, to buy the book in one form or another. Or, or maybe it's just tempting, you know... It's classic socialism, isn't it? Give people free stuff. They just want more free stuff. Okay, let's say hello to a few more patrons here. We've got Peter Savin, who just sounds like a plastic surgeon. Ryan Morrison, who I think Ryan has re-signed up. I will say that again. If you if you want to be a patron, always check your account. If you haven't heard from me recently, sometimes it just bumps people out and helpfully doesn't tell them. What a great way to make money. Uh, we've got Martin Graham, and never trust a man with two first names. Paul Batten. Paul Batten. Paul Batten, you, would you marry a woman called Shelley Berg? Is that a worst joke ever? The Battenbergs? Come on, look, I'm working it. I'm in fucking Wakefield. I'm doing my best. And then Colin Chesterton, who I just don't believe that's a real name. If you said to me, Jeff, we need, quickly, we need a fictional name for an author, I would go Colin Chesterton. Um, so, yeah, just type in stuff. The Patreon um, content drop stream thing is happening on the 2nd of July and that's going to be open to all patrons and that is my 2019 tour show Taking Liberties and like I say you don't have to pay extra for this if you do think well that was actually a decent thing over and above just funding the podcast um, you can up your your uh, contribution for a month or something and then knock it back or, or whatever you want to do but like I say I'm already grateful for that so if, you, if things are tight, don't worry about it. Just enjoy the show. One thing you could do for me that is absolutely free is go to YouTube. I am I'm putting more content on there bit by bit, and that just helps me. You watch a thing, you like it, you subscribe. It generates a little bit of ad revenue. Happy days. And then, of course, the tour, which I'm currently part of the reason I'm in a fucking hotel room in Wakefield, is that I'm getting together gear for the next tour. And it's just fun stuff, man. I didn't think I, I, didn't think I was going to be as combative uh, in this tour, but I think you'll be pleased to hear that the more I write it, <laughs> turns out I am pissed off about quite a lot of stuff. So, uh, listen, we're going to get back to the audio extract from my audio book, and then we'll do a couple of letters just before we finish the show. I think about my son. It'll be odd explaining to him one day that I lost my job for voting in line with just over half the country. It might seem paranoid, but the moment racism becomes synonymous with a political decision, you're in trouble. You'd be more likely to keep a job in TV if you'd drunk-driven and actually risked human life than if you used a racist term. Personally, I'd think it would be great if human beings did neither. But if Ant McPartland had mown down a person of colour when he was driving over the limit, the first thing ITV bosses would have asked is, what did he say as he was doing it? For a long time, political correctness gone mad has been mocked as a phrase, 
repeated ironically as a stick to beat the populists and reactionaries. It was true that there were absurd mythical stories of people banning Christmas or prohibiting anyone saying bar bar black sheep, but as the 2010s wore on, there were more and more examples of political correctness morphing into something much more unhinged. In Rochdale, the amount of time it took for authorities to believe victims of Asian grooming gangs suggested a hesitancy to get to grips with a potentially explosive issue. In 2004, Colin Cramphorn, the then Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police, demanded Channel 4 withdraw a documentary on the issue because it could trigger violence in a racially tense area. Journalist Julie Bindell was the first to report nationally on this issue and was, in her words, placed on Islamophobia Watch. The general reluctance of left-wing media to talk about this difficult issue created space for the far right to take full ownership. Political correctness couldn't just go mad, sometimes it could go certifiably insane. So I had my reasons to be worried. It had become commonplace to make an inextricable link between a leave vote and racism. Billy Bragg spoke with some nuance but a certainty that jarred with me. Not every leave voter is a racist, but every racist will vote leave. Fair enough. But I'd argue there must have been at least one racist Remainer, perhaps someone who hated people from other countries but also owned properties in France. I did have a view on immigration and, several years later, it's still not one I've heard articulated much. I accept all the arguments about the positive things immigration has done for Britain, but I also find the freedom of movement idea a bit absolutist. The idea that any citizen of an EU country should be able to live and work without limit in fellow member states. The idea was nice, but unlimited in perpetuity seemed extreme to me. Even all-you-can-eat data has fair play limits. I didn't understand why nations shouldn't have a mechanism to adjust targets while they trained enough doctors, nurses and police to keep up with the rate of new arrivals. The problem with medics and law enforcement is they take a while to get up to speed. No one wants a crash course for doctors. The truth is my experience of immigration had been a positive one. When I was growing up in South London, it was around the time of a period of high influx from Asia, Africa and the Caribbean. Unlike many middle-class people throwing the term racist around, I actually had friends in those communities. Not just friends, even. The Asian family who lived upstairs at our first family home in Wimbledon became a surrogate family to me. They still are. It's always tricky to try and establish your non-racist credentials by pointing out the people close to you who aren't the same colour as you. The liberal left have come up with the derided booby-trap cliché Some of my best friends are black. Being friends with a black person doesn't entirely exonerate you of racism, but it's a decent start. I'd be more worried by someone who mocked that phrase but had a whiter friendship group than Hitler. The working classes have historically been on the front line of racial integration. Our kids are more likely to go to school with and marry outside of their community. We are statistically more likely to work with Eastern Europeans. We work in industries more likely to be threatened by wage competition like construction and factory work. What would the middle-class reaction to immigration have been if the influx had been Romanian marketing gurus? Furthermore, the rhetoric Remainers started to adopt after the vote sounded more and more like the reductive xenophobia they claimed to despise. Who is going to pick the strawberries? Who will look after our children or work at Pret? All of which made the EU sound like less of a peacekeeping force for good and more like a production line of economic umpalumpus. I lost count of the amount of times supposedly liberal friends would proudly tell me how they've stopped using British builders because Eastern European ones have such a great attitude. The attitude they seemed to be particularly fond of was doing jobs for less money. It's now lunchtime at the TV production company. I've had my head down writing jokes all morning, stealing nervous glances at the currency markets. 
We're shortly due to holiday in Disneyland Paris, and I'm anxiously looking at the value of the pound. My wife is one of those naturally smart people. A week before the vote, she said to me, don't forget to get euros, Jeff. If the vote goes leave, we'll get stung. The rest of the afternoon is pleasantly soporific, whereas the morning saw adrenaline coursing through people's bodies and everyone you spoke to had their eyes out on stalks, the rest of the day is the exact opposite. It's amazing how much lunch can take the wind out of people's morning anger. On a primitive level, your most basic human fear for the day has been assuaged. Yes, we might crash the economy and housing market, but equally, I have a cheese sandwich in front of me, so I won't die of starvation. A win's a win. Even some of the more uptight people are now engaging in various shades of gallows humour. One of the assistant producers who'd been giving me evils in the morning notices my sandwiches come from Pret and says, Enjoy it, Jeff. You'll be making your own soon. I almost bite, but realise this is serious progress from earlier when she was looking at me like I was the bastard son of Farage. I suppressed the desire to point out that immigration was never going to completely stop because of Brexit. Instead, I waved the sandwich back at her. I wonder if she notices that it's plain cheese and if that confirms her opinion of me as one of the Little Englanders. The kind of guy who pulls up his socks with the same force he pulls up the ladder on economic migrants. These new layers to social awkwardness are only just beginning and I suspect they'll be with us for some time to come. As I leave the offices in Docklands, there seems to be a lot of people getting drunk in the sterile, soulless bars lining the route back to Canary Wharf. Fair enough, it's been a confusing day, and getting shit-faced is a sensibly British method of postponement. I look at a couple of the suits standing in the smoking area outside one bar. I can't tell if they're hammered already or just punch-drunk from a bewildering day. It's a hazy sort of summer evening too, which only adds to the general sense of discombobulation. I reflect on something a cultural pundit said on Sky News as I was having my lunch. He said that this was an attempt by people to stop the march of globalisation, to take the batteries out of the globalist clock. He also went on to some cliché bollocks about Little Englanders, but I wonder if his first point might have been valid, especially about me. I can't speak for all Leave voters, but did part of my vote come from a desire to hit that pause button? As I'd lost so many people and the world carried on heedlessly, Maybe a part of me saw Brexit as a chance to slow that forward process. It wasn't on my mind when I voted, but it might have been under it. Jeff! Jeff! Someone appears to be calling my name. Given the atmosphere of reproach and recrimination, I shrug it off as the echoes of my own paranoia. It persists and I notice one of the heads of the production company is beckoning me into the bar to join her team for a drink. It's been a long day. I'm on the winning side, but success feels exhausting, so I accept the invite. The bar is heavy with motormouth chat and nervous laughter. The production head is holding court with a pleasant crew of TV minions. She talks brightly, trying to wave away the events of the day and theorising freely about Lee voters as these stupid people who believe things written on the side of buses. Ah, the advert on the bus. That famous claim printed on the side of Boris's tour bus that suggested we could use the 350 million we give to the EU per week to help fund the NHS. A very creative bit of advertising the likes of me was supposed to have fallen for hook, line and sinker. After one and a half pints and with no thought for my son's college fund, I decide to engage. I voted leave. I wasn't swayed by that bus. I then also add that it was clearly a coach. She's surprised more than angry. I guess she didn't expect on this day of all days to find any leavers in the metropolitan hotbed of terrestrial TV. The discussion plays out like many more I'll have in this vein, simmering, sometimes driven by the genuine spirit of inquiry, but mostly underscored by tension, like complaining to customer services but not going so far that you get cut off. 
I can't tell if my argument as to why I voted leave has placated or wound her up more. I try to lighten the mood by suggesting Remainers have got nothing to lose. If we leave and it turns out alright, you can enjoy the prosperity. But if it all goes tits up, you can dine out for the rest of your life on being proved right. In some ways, that's the most noble death for a Guardian reader. Getting to die saying I told you so. This glib comment does not land well. I look at my watch and shake my point as if to say, well, this one's done, best be on my way. Except it's very much not done. And beer splashes over the edges and forms a horrid urine-coloured pool in the corner of my open bag of crisps. She says with genuine good intent, Ah, Jeff, you're one of the okay ones. It occurs to me that the only other time I've heard this phrase is when racists are deciding who is alright and who isn't. But this really isn't the time to split linguistic hairs, and I'm not sure comparing my unease to the race struggle is wise at this point. Plus, I've still got that three-month-old son I need to provide for. As I'm fumbling with my things, getting ready to go, the colleague who flashed me the morning evils said, aren't you going to Disneyland soon? That's going to cost a bit more. I should have countered that point by calling holidays a preoccupation of the liberal elite, that democracy and sovereignty are more important than how many times they get to hit the slopes this year. But at that very moment, I remember that I didn't change up those euros like my wife suggested. This is turning out to be a very challenging day. Okay, so there it was, a whole chapter free from the audiobook. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope that means you're going to either buy the book or download it from free from Audible while it lasts, because it will be going up to full price uh, at some point soon. And I don't know if that made you have any memories of that day, you know, what happened on Brexit. Have you have you changed your view? Are you a leaver? <laughs> this sounds like classic phoning on LBC now, doesn't it? Uh, no, I mean, LBC would ask better questions than this. This, this is like... Your fucking bottom bottom line phone in. Have you changed your view on Brexit? Give us a call. Were you a leaver that now wants to remain, or even a remainer that now wants to leave? Give us a call on what most people think. Uh, but yeah, email in at what most people think UK at gmail.com and did it provoke any memories for you? All right, let's just do one letter which is picking up slightly from something from last week's episode with the man whisperer. Okay, this is a letter from Lady. She's a woman. Um this is from Ruth. Um, she said, love the podcast. Can't believe it's nearly 100. They have kept me sane. Yeah, I better do something special for the 100. We were going to do a live show uh, in Bethnal Green, but I sort of canvassed. I thought it'd be a really big deal, but I canvassed Patreon. And everyone was like, um, yeah, we could do that, Jeff. You know, and you thought, you're like, yeah, no, it's fine, man. Yeah, look, it was just an idea. I was just floating it out there. But I think what I, what I should do is just get a really banging guest. So let me get on the case with that. Uh, she says, I enjoy the mental health section. See, all the people that moan about the mental health bit, I'm bringing couples together. Uh, I'm trying to understand my husband better. He's lovely and supportive, but I find every time I try to talk about what's upsetting or getting me down, which is often lately, haha, yeah, hey, going through the old, no, um, too young for that. It just ends in me getting more upset. I think it's because all I want is someone to say, oh, that shit, what a shame. Uh, but inevitably, he tries to solve the problem. Is this a man thing? Um, yeah, I think maybe you already know that a bit, a bit, Ruth, but, but that is a fundamental problem between men and women, isn't it? Is that if, right, if you want to hear it from a man's point of view, the way a man would think about that is you're saying, this is shit, this is shit. We would show you the respect to believe that it's shit and just nod and think, well, obviously you know it's shit. That's why you're telling me it's shit. I wouldn't sort of be disrespectful enough to challenge that for you. So my only role in this situation is, is to offer advice or try to, to fix things. Whereas women... You know, maybe it's the old hunter-gatherer thing where men would go out for ages with just one or two of them and women would stay in the community, but they just need reassurance. They need 
echoing, you know? I, 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 it took me years to work out with my wife that she would often ask rhetorical questions that she wanted answering. <laughs> so they sounded like rhetorical questions, but they weren't. It's a real trick that you've got to learn. You just... Yeah, just to echo what women say back to them. But, but then you sort of sound... <laughs> problem for a bloke is then you sort of sound like a woman, you know? So she'll say something like, God, it's just... It's an absolute nightmare at work at the moment. God, you go, that sounds like an absolute nightmare. And you just think, what a pointless thing to have said. But you just have to learn that over time, that's what women want. And if you can't say, you know, stuff like that, just give her a foot rub. In my experience, if you, can, <laughs> if you can't bring yourself to kind of not fix things, just, just rub her foot while she's talking. Then you don't have to say anything. Women love a foot rub, you know? That's why, also, women love, women love being cooked for as well. I think that's one of the biggest myths about men and women is they say a, man, a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And you go, you, you cook a nice meal for a woman, they're so appreciative, you know? They just, it's just something exclusively being done for them. Whereas men, men have like, tend to have like quite a functionality when we eat. You know, have you ever seen tradesmen eating in a cafe there's like a grim sort of like sense of duty as they're putting away a gut buster like this is something i have to do this is fuel for my work i'm a physical man whereas women i think eat far more for pleasure they make more noises when they eat there's something more you know when you mention like when women even say the word chocolate right there's a slightly different relationship uh, they've got with it so i would say that first thing for blokes is experiment with just saying platitudes back to a woman because the thing is right you might think well this is stupid but if you find that it works and then she's in a better mood sooner you're winning so you might feel like a bell end just for echoing sentiments but then she's in a better mood do you know what i mean then you you, you, you she's getting a foot rub you, you both you know you, <laughs> good things might happen for both of you is what i'm saying so so just just experiment with with uh, with platitudes, this this is gonna be my new book, uh, men's self help group. Experimenting with platitudes, but uh, but yeah, and and also look, if your missus actually just straight up says to you, look, you don't have to fix this, just listen. Maybe this is the key for women as well. Just be more direct, okay? At the beginning, just go, look, this is how this is gonna work, okay? Set it out, play by play, go. I hate this woman at work. I know you've met her and you actually got on all right with her, which did fucking annoy me a bit, right? So what? What you're going to do is you're going to nod along and you're just going to agree with me. And you're going to agree with me that, that she's a twat on, in every level. And you'll probably take it even a bit further. And if you take it too far, I'll start thinking that you're having an affair with her. But just go with it. Uh, right, so as ever, at the end of the show, we read out a few five-star reviews here from the iTunes. Thank you for leaving them wherever you leave them. iTunes is the only place that I can really access them. So I'll always read out the five-star ones. So let's see what we've got recently. We've got, uh, this is from Jam5568. Been listening to the audio, Jeff, for some time now. Bought the audio book of where I, <laughs> he's given the wrong title. Uh, not listened to it yet, but looking for, oh, is it a scouser? Uh, not listened to it yet, but looking forward to it. I'm a 50-year-old scouser that has lived in Yorkshire for 30 years. Wow, what a cultural clash that is. Never in the field of human history has a northern monkey felt such affinity with a southern... <laughs> I don't know if I can say that word. I'm going for a shower, but I appreciate the sentiment, boss. Thank you. This is from Andrew Woodman. Uh, this pod has been a weekly staple and helped me keep me sane in the last year. Highly observant and witty takes of the week, together with a great range of guests and some fantastic episodes focusing on mental health. Happy to call out the faults of the government as a critical friend rather than a ranting lefty hypocrite. <laughs> That's it. That's exactly what I'm aiming to be. And those are the two that we've had recently. So thank you to everybody that um, that leaves reviews and stuff like that, both here. And do keep leaving them for the book. That is now 
rocking a 4.9 rating on Amazon, and that's coming up for 300 ratings. And you have to understand that is really fucking useful to me. So if you've if you've read it and you haven't reviewed it yet, and you think it was good. Only if you think it was good, then go and leave a review there. And uh, I'm going to leave it for this week. And I'm just going to, well, I think I'm going to spend the rest of the day uh, looking at that photo of Matt Hancock and laughing at the fact that somebody is experiencing <laughs> a really shit day uh, while I have to be in Wakefield. Okay, 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 okay.